Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance. Grateful to be with you in this air-conditioned room on a very muggy uh, Sunday. So this is not a controversial statement, but I believe that New York City is the greatest city in the world. And y'all can clap for New York. Y'all can clap for New York. But just because I believe that New York City is the greatest city in the world does not mean that we cannot critique a couple of the things about this city that I love. Uh, the rats, for one. Come on, we got to get that, get that under control. Uh, number two, I love the restaurants in New York City, but I, I just don't like how closely they sit you next to other people. Like, you can hear everything. We have heard some pretty wild conversations happening at our tables. We've heard breakups happening as it's going on. Like, we're trying to order our food, and you hear the breakup going down. Um, we've heard conspiracies. People believe some wild things in this city. And from time to time, I've even heard some theological battles and discussions that were happening. Uh, this one time, a number of years ago, uh, we went to brunch on, um, on a Sunday, and 8th Avenue was flooded. And we sat down uh, next to a group of people who were halfway through their bottomless mimosas. And that topic that day was the church and Christians and how hypocritical Christians are. Now, for the most part, I actually did agree with them for a little bit. Uh, Christians are oftentimes full of contradictions. We talk about a God that forgives, but we're often the people who are the least forgiving. We talk about and worship a God that gave us his all, but we're stingy. We sing songs about a God who is full of power and victory belongs to Jesus, and yet we're riddled with anxiety and concerns. Like I said, we are full of contradictions. But that day, the conversation actually wasn't about that. It was about one of the most misunderstood topics in the Bible. And let me just say it like the guy next to us um, on his seventh mimosa said it. He said, Christians are hypocrites. Doesn't the Bible say that you're not supposed to eat seafood? And yet, there are all of these Christians who just, just left church and went straight to Red Lobster for some shrimp scampi. They pick and choose what they want to follow. Now, I'm going to stop talking about food soon because I don't want y'all daydreaming about Red Lobster and the biscuits and the scampi and all of that. But it is true. Certainly, in the Old Testament, there were laws from God that said that you were not allowed to eat seafood, uh, this type of seafood. In Leviticus 11 and 10, it says this, but these are to be abhorrent to you. Everything in the seas or streams that does not have fins and scales among all the swarming things and living creatures in the waters. So what basically Old Testament law prohibited anybody eating shrimp and lobster and crabs. And this was a law in Scripture. The Bible says not to do this. But if you've been around Christianity a little bit, you know that there is a lot of laws in the Old Testament that Christians don't follow. And does it make you a hypocrite for not following these things? And so what really one of my hopes for today is that we get a better understanding of theology, of what it means for us to faithfully follow Jesus um, and really have clarity around why we do what we do and why we don't do what we won't do. So for today's purposes, I want to define law as God's instruction for people. 
And this is a really, really important topic, uh, something so important that really there was a group of people just like us in the early church in Galatia that the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to. And we've been in the series of Galatians trying to help us understand what is the role of the law, the Old Testament, in your life. If you seek to follow Jesus, what is the role of law? Now, here's why this is so important. Because a lot of people, since they don't understand it, you actually have a lower view of the Bible. And so when you actually do need to turn to Bible with your trust, with your affection, with your adoration to lead and guide you, you kind of look at it like it's, like it's meaningless or you don't know which ones to pick and to choose. One of the challenges as we think about what it means to, to live as a follower of Jesus really does hinge on how we understand this because I'll give a little bit away right now. A lot of times people look at God and they say, well, there's like this Old Testament God and then there's this New Testament God. And they're kind of the same, but they're kind of different. And the one in the New Testament is the one I follow. The one in the Old Testament is the one that I don't really understand. And so I I really think that that is a, a really terrible way to approach the Bible and to approach Scripture. Because if you do this, you'll just look at large chunks of the Bible as really meaningless and in some ways even harmful to you. Uh, Years ago, my wife and I uh, were very fortunate to win the lotto of sorts on an affordable uh, unit to buy in Harlem. And I'll I'll never forget when my wife um, saw this one piece of property on Twitter, like, hey, we can afford a property in Harlem. I said, baby cakes, we can't afford a closet in Harlem. (laughs) And we looked at it, and sure enough, uh, we qualified for the, the restrictions and the income requirements, and we were able to buy this apartment. And when we um, got the apartment, it needed a lot of TLC, right? It needed a lot of work. But my wife, fortunately, she watches all the HGTV shows. She has the vision. You know what I'm saying? She knew what to do with the textures and the colors and the patterns and the prints. And you know what I'm saying? Y'all ain't know I knew all of that. Um, (laughs) And a lot of times, the contractor would come to us, and he would ask us a question. And I would say, listen, my man, I don't think you understand. Talk to her. She's the boss. She runs the money, the vision, and everything else in this house. I only have one thing that I insist on. Some people in life, they dream of retiring early or they dream of living in another country. I dreamed of having a refrigerator with an ice maker. (laughs) And that was my dream in life. And now that I've gotten it, it is as good as they say it would be. (laughs) So that's all I wanted was a refrigerator with an ice maker. That's all I wanted. And by the grace of God, we got that. But a number of years into the apartment, Um, the ice maker started to break. I know, tears, weeping in tears. Um, But praise God, we bought that extended warranty. You know what I'm saying? So the ice maker stopped working, and we contacted the people who sold it to us and said, hey, the machine is not working anymore. And the first person came out to fix the ice maker. Within about five minutes, we knew that they actually had stopped making the model of refrigerator that we were in. And so he said nobody's going to be able to fix your refrigerator. We're actually supposed to give you a new one. However, there is a rule that says we cannot give you a new refrigerator until three people have tried to come out and fix it. But I was talking to the dude. I was like, yo, but you just told me they stopped making the parts. And that I have to call and schedule two more appointments for people to come out and just sit in my kitchen and talk to me for five minutes just to fulfill this rule. And he was like, yes, you're tracking And so for like the next six months, I had to stay on hold for like two hours to get another appointment that they would cancel. And it literally took about six or eight months just to get the third visit to come 
and everybody knew all along that they would never be able to fix the refrigerator. There was this rule in place that was meaningless. It was outdated. It was harmful. It went against logic. But since there was a rule in the books, they had to follow it. A lot of Christians approach the Bible like that, that there are just these outdated, meaningless rules on the books that you think are ignorant and harmful. And y'all, the Bible is so much better than that. The Bible is so, so, so much better than that. It's meant to be so much more life-giving. Now, that day at brunch, I wanted to interject into the conversation and say, excuse me, I actually, I'm a pastor, by the way. <laughs> uh, and I wanted to set them straight on why the Bible is such a beautiful book, why it can be trusted, and why their very narrow and wrong interpretation actually was leading them towards not finding the joy in Scripture that I think God intended for us to have. And so how should you relate to the law? Are they meaningless rules that were written once upon a time that you never have to follow, or are they something different? And so when we talk about the law and Scripture, there are three different uses of the law in the Bible. All three of these different uses are very different, and you should never approach uh, a scripture that has one use of the law the way you would approach it with others. So the first use of the law you'll see in scripture is the civil use of the law. So check this out. Israel was a nation. They had laws. They had government. They had roads. They had courts. They had all of these different systems of governance that they would use. And there were all of these laws on how Israel as a society, a historical place in a historical time, would operate. And many times we forget that the Bible is actually also a historical book that records the accounts of what happened in history. And so the first use of the law you'll see is historical law. I mean, I'm sorry, a civil use of the law. One of those examples is in Deuteronomy 15. And it says this, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. Hello, student loan forgiveness. Now, what did they know in Israel? They knew that if a person was trapped in debt perpetually, it would end up being a predatory process and that they would never recover from. And so, in their economy, they created a year of Jubilee where the seventh year they would wipe the debts clean. Now, when people say that student loan forgiveness or debt forgiveness is biblical, they're correct. However, it would be incorrect to say that since they did it just like this in the Bible, we need to do it just like this in American society thousands of years later. We can draw inferences from the civil law to say this is what the people of God thought would be the most helpful and flourishing way for society to live. We live in a different system, a different economy, in which, again, I hope and pray that we are drawing the tenets and gleaning the wisdom from the ancients about what it looks like to free people from predatory poverty. But does it mean that we have to follow these things specifically to the T? No, it does not. Because this is the civil use of the law. This is the way Israel ran its country. This was meant for Israel, and it, when Scripture gives us what they did, it's telling us what they did. It's a historical book. So... These laws are helpful for us, but using and obeying the civil laws of Israel will not make you a child of God any more than if I sang the French national anthem would make me French. It's just simply something that these people did in order to thrive and to flourish. So the second use of the law is the moral use of the law. The moral use of the law reflects God's character. And since God's character does not change, his views on morality do not change either. 
So these do not need to be written down because these go back to God's creative intent for what God intended for his people to do and to live. Murder is an example of God's moral law. The first murder happens in the earliest pages of Scripture where Cain killed his brother uh, Abel, and God held him guilty for murder even though there was no law in the books. Why is that? Because these moral laws don't go down to um, a piece of papyrus and some writing. They go back to God's creative order. What did God intend for us when he created us? Did he intend for us to harm each other? No. And so... God's moral law doesn't change. These are things that you can import from generation to generation, which is why even in the book of Galatians where Paul is going through this thing about the law versus faith and justification by faith, you'll see later in chapters that Paul is talking about all of these moral issues in Galatians 5 about what it looks like to be led by the flesh versus being led by the spirit. And so God's moral law is something that is binding on us uh, through the generations, So that little white lie you tell on your taxes, um, God intends for us to be people who are honest. God wants us to be honest. And just because the economy has changed doesn't mean your answers should change. So number one, there's a civil use of the law. Um, Number two, there's this moral use of the law. And let me say this really quickly. Whenever Jesus and and New Testament authors mentioned the moral laws, they really always reaffirmed them and intensified them. Jesus followed the moral law, upheld them, and said that he was the fulfillment of all of these things. Now, the third use of the law in Scripture is ceremonial law. Ceremonial law include restrictions on regaining right standing with God. So in the Old Testament, they had a temple system where the way that you would be made right with God was not coming to a church service and hearing a sermon. It wasn't coming to the prayer line after service. There was an entire system of sacrifices that had to be given in order for you to be made right with God. So they had these holy days, and on the holy days, you had to come into town either with your sacrifice or you had to get, um, bring it with you, and you had this whole sacrificial system that was required for you to regain right standing with God. They understood that there was a chasm, that there was a debt owed to God that there was sin in their life, and they knew that they could not stand in front of a holy and perfect and righteous God just on their own too. They needed a sacrifice. They needed something that was going to cleanse them to make them right with God. Now, the ceremonial laws are at the very issue of what Paul is talking about in Galatians 3. And I want to read this passage of Scripture for you in Galatians 3 and 10 through 14. Paul says this, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, Because it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of law is cursed. Now, it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, this is admittedly some of the heavier stuff that Paul is walking through in the book of Galatians. And he's getting to the crux of the issue here. What should be done with the ceremonial laws like circumcision? 
Circumcision was an identifying mark that was intended to be a ceremonial law that identified you with God, that you would be in right standing with God if the men in the community went through this ritual. And the reason that Paul is so vehement to tell people to never observe the ceremonial laws is he's basically saying you cannot pay for things that have already been paid. If you believe in Jesus who hung on a tree and took the curse for us, essentially we are saying Jesus himself, this is what the prophets prophesied. This is what scripture pointed to, that there would be one who would come who would take away sin from us. And since Jesus went to the cross, scripture says that when Jesus died and said to Telestai, it is, it is finished, that Jesus ended the separation, the need for us to approach God in a ceremonial way. But Jesus, in fact, now was the way. It is by his blood that we can come to the Father with boldness, not because we have uh, slaughtered some pigeons, but because the Lamb of God, once and for all, was our sacrifice, and he paved the way for us to have right standing with God. If you're looking for right standing with God, Paul would say, don't follow any of these ceremonial laws. Follow Jesus. Put your faith in him. And to say that I need to do this on top of it is actually cheapening what Jesus did on the cross. You're basically saying, yes, Jesus said he paid for it, but I don't think he did, so take, take this $5 and put that on it as well. And so Paul is really adamant, and essentially, Paul is not even just neutral. He's saying it would be offensive to go back to the ceremonial law because that would communicate that Jesus' sacrifice was not sufficient. You know, um, I used to practice law, and I, I did all types of law, and uh, I did housing court and, as well, and a lot of times... I hope this doesn't trigger anybody. A landlord um, would sue a tenant to recover money for non-payment. So if you were behind in your rent a certain amount, the landlord would take you to court and try to get you evicted. Now, I would represent tenants all the time, and there was a couple of ways that you can get the case satisfied. Number one, you get evicted, or number two, you pay. And essentially, almost all the time, what would happen is I would try to work out a deal with the landlord and this is what's called in full satisfaction of the docket. So I would try to work out a deal with the landlord what amount they would accept in full satisfaction of all the claims against them. And regardless of whatever had been paid or not paid in the history, if they accepted it, the judge would mark that case off the docket. Now, if you were to go back to the court the next week and to say, you know what, man, the landlord took a lower amount or this happened or this happened, and I, I still really feel guilty about it. The judge and the clerk will look at you saying, sir, the, ma'am, the, the case is off the docket. It's not, even on, it's, it's not even up for conversation. It has to be on the docket for conversational purposes. And so if something is fully satisfied, it is removed. Scripture says that Jesus canceled the, debt, the, the certificate of debt against us. It's, it's removed. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed you from your sins. Your sins are not even on the docket for conversation anymore. It's been fully satisfied. And now to walk up and say, ah, I just don't feel like it is, or I, I need to add something to it, it's disrespecting what has been done on the cross because Jesus fully satisfied it on the cross. And Paul wants people to have a higher view of this wonderful cross. In the first week of the series, we mentioned a number of things that this church in Galatia was wrestling with. Many of us this morning did not wake up pondering the deep theological question about whether or not 
men need to be circumcised in order to belong to God. But we do answer, ask ourselves these questions. Does God accept me? Does God approve of me? Does God love me? And I'll add one more. Does God like you? And what is the basis for your confidence in these answers and the question? How are you going to answer that? Now, there are two ways to go about it. There is the law approach where you have a list of do's and don'ts. If you do enough, if you stack all the good things out and they outweigh the bad things, and maybe you can answer, yes, God accepts me because I've done these things. But what about the people who have done some real things in your life that you're embarrassed about? And probably even beyond embarrassment, there's probably some things that you've done that make you feel shameful and feel ashamed. You can't even forgive yourself, let alone receive forgiveness from God. Others of you, your whole life, you've actually done a pretty good job. As a matter of fact, you've done better than most people. And you're trying to answer those questions based on how well you've done in comparison to other people. And when you're living in this way, when it's up to you and how well you have done your do's and don'ts list, how many boxes you have checked, it's always going to give you a false assurance. And Paul writes this letter in Galatians to try to get people off the treadmill of their own performance and their own self-assurance about um, what they are experiencing in a relationship with God. Listen, I, I understand that the gospel in some ways almost sounds too easy to some people. That like, I'm a sinner. God gave me his best in Jesus. Jesus died a horrific death for me? Yes. And I don't have to add anything to it. No, you can't, even if you wanted to. You know what that's supposed to do in your life? It's supposed to produce a level of gratitude and adoration and worship that would change everything about you. It's not meant to be a yoke that sits on top of your neck and forces you to live in, in, in fear, constantly in fear, or alternatively, constantly in pride that you're doing better than someone else. So I want to read the rest of this one scripture for this morning and talk about some implications from this uh, chapter in Galatians um, that I, I think would be helpful for us. Verse 19, Paul says, Why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions or sins, until the seed to whom the promise would made would come, Jesus. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. Now, I want you to look at that verse again. What Paul is basically saying is the law, your obedience to a set of instructions, does not have the ability to give you life. What do you want? Do you want a life with God or do you want a checklist from God? Paul is saying the law has no power to give us life. What the law can do is point us and give us an awareness of our need for a Savior. And that's what the law has done. So a couple of implications from and takeaways from Galatians 3 that I want us to focus in on. And then we can go to Red Lobster and get some biscuits. Number one, Christians are under a different system where the love of God is the central tenet. Christians are under a different system than the law where the love of God and loving God 
is the central tenet. If you were to read through the New Testament, you'll see that there are so many times where different religious leaders try to trip Jesus up. One time, they come to Jesus and they ask him a question. They say, Jesus, tell us, out of all the laws, which, ones are the most, which one is the most important? Jesus looked at them and gave them a very confident answer. To love the Lord God with all of your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. And to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the prophets and all the laws. What Jesus has come to do is to make love the aim of your life. There's so many times I talk to people at Renaissance and you're, they're riddled with anxiety about whether or not they're doing it right. And I get it, right? We talk about God who is holy and, and God who is just and will, will judge sin. I don't want to be on the wrong side of that. I want to do the right thing. But what ends up happening is we focus in on so many small details and we miss out on what actually Jesus intends for us. The goal of it is to love him. You know, one of the things that I found to be most powerful um, in Scripture is this reminder from Jesus in John 21. Jesus was with one of his disciples, a man named Peter. Peter had just um, denied Jesus three times. He betrayed Jesus. Peter was talking big stuff, saying, Jesus, if everybody falls away, I won't because it's me and you forever. Jesus says, yo, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Peter does just that. He denies Jesus three times. Jesus, after his resurrection, makes a beeline towards Peter. And here's what he says to Peter. Peter, do you love me? If it was me, I would have been like, Peter, you was talking big stuff, bro. You was talking real reckless. You said that you weren't going to deny me at all, and you did it three times. I would have spent time in the details. Jesus knows better than that. The goal of Peter's restoration was not to make him do a better job. It was to remind him of his first love. That's why in the book of Revelation it says, but I hold this against you. You've done all these good things, but you have left your first love. The goal of Scripture is love, that you would love God more than other things. My wife was reading this one book, and the author was talking about some painful decisions she had to make. And her reason for making the painful decision was just, I love God more than other things. And I wonder if the opposite is said about me sometimes or could be said about me sometimes, that I love the other thing more than I love God. I love the good name more than I love God. I love influence more than I love God. I love performance more than I love God. The list goes, I love me more than I love God. You know, a lot of times my wife and I, we do a lot of work right now on stuff with married couples, and we're trying to, you know, really help people in general. And a lot of times... We meet with people or we'll be in a setting where they're arguing about communication. If we can just figure out the communication, then we will be okay. It's so hard to bring two different people who speak two different languages, uh, heart languages at least, into the room on the same page. And we always say, like, nah, you don't need to worry about none of that. The problem is you don't have practices that build intimacy in your life. You have no passion in your marriage. So, of course, you're going to be arguing about every little thing that happens. But if you were to aim for passion... If you were to aim for, like, real passion in your life, everything else would follow. The conversation about where you're spending Christmas would be an easy one. So many, of, so many times in our life, we struggle and we stumble because love is not the, gain, the, the aim of our lives. And check this out. Only the gospel 
will produce love in your life. The law has no ability to, to give us life. How good of a job you're doing will never produce that inside of you. It is only seeing Jesus, our risen Savior, on the cross, beaten for you, that you were worth it. Will our hearts finally say, Lord, you deserve it. You deserve my hallelujah. My highest praise belongs to you. Number two, love does not diminish what is required of us. It simply changes the motivation. Love does not diminish what is required of us. It changes our motivation. Many people live as if their relationship with God is based on a point system of how well you do, and that always leads to one of two exits, pride that you're doing better than other people or discouragement that you're not doing enough. But Christ has ended all of that, and the goal he wants to produce in you is a heart of gratitude and love, that 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 would be your motivation. You know, I would like to think that I'm a humble person in many settings. Um, I don't know if that ruins humility if you say you're humble. It, It does probably a little bit. But there is one place that I am not the most humble person, and that is with airlines and travel. They should have never given me status. That's where they messed up. And I get to fly a lot for, for work and for fun sometimes. And I have earned some medallion status. And the, the thing that's messed me up is that I have learned what you're supposed to get, like what they're obligated to give you when you have earned the status. I'm not eating them little snacks. Bring me the, the premium snacks on, on my flight because I have earned this. And my wife rolls her eyes because she knows I'm obnoxious when it comes to travel. But this last Monday, Jordan was the most humble, grateful person that has ever existed in an airport. It wasn't at LGA in the Delta, on a Delta flight. My wife and I had to go to Florida for some meetings, and we had a bunch of friends and a bunch of people who were all converging on this one gathering in Florida, and it really, really meant a lot for us to get there. But last Sunday, there was actually a cancellation of all the flights. Uh, There was some weather stuff happening, and I just got the text message from Delta saying, your flight is canceled. They didn't even, like, try to rebook it. They was like, it's over, bro. Just, you ain't going. And I really wanted to go, and so I hopped on Google Flights trying to figure out how we can get there. And really, the only way that we could potentially get there close to on time is if we took a train to Baltimore and then flew from Baltimore to Florida. So I did the whole plan, booked us a train. We're standing there in line at 11 o'clock, and the train is delayed about 10 minutes, then 20 minutes, then 30 minutes. And now the margin that we thought we were going to have was disappearing. And now I was worried whether or not we would even catch this flight in Baltimore. We're sitting on the train, and I'm like, yo, this just doesn't look good. The flight was supposed to take off at 3.30. We didn't get to the airport. We did not arrive to the airport until 3.10. Right, that's what I said. (laughs) So we get to the security line, and I'm not even rushing at this point. What I did is I canceled our flight that was supposed to leave at 3.30, and I booked another flight for two hours later. So we're walking through security at a leisurely pace, and we had all this time to kill, and we were going to miss out on some more meetings, and I was pretty bummed. So I said, you know what, let's just go to the gate just to see what would happen. So we walked to the gate, and miraculously, They were still boarding that plane. I still had my boarding pass, even though my flight had been canceled. So I tried to be slick, y'all. I walked up to the the gate. I was like, yeah, just scan it real quick. Just try to hold my phone down. And they scanned it, and it made a loud noise, like, no. 
you, you, you need to go over there. So I ran to the counter, and I was so humble, y'all. I was, we were about to fly on Southwest. I haven't flown Southwest like in 20 years. I had no status. I had canceled the flight. We were late, and the flight was about to close the doors. I started using all this Christian language. I was like, sir, if you can find it in your heart to, <laughs> to just pour out a measure of grace on my life, I would, I would greatly appreciate it. Scripture says sometimes that God visits us with angels, and I want to tell you all about an angel named Davon that works at the counter <laughs> out southwest. That brother blessed us that day, and he was so calm. He told the other person working at the gate what to do, how to make the changes, and they put us on this plane. And we were walking onto the plane. My seat was like 30 rows away from Jessica's seat. I was in the middle seat, and I've never been more grateful in my life. I was so happy to just be, I was smiling for like the first 30 minutes because I had received something that I did not deserve. So many of us, we don't approach our, God, our, our relationship with God with any gratitude because we feel like we've earned it. We're trying to earn it by doing a better job. We're not able to live with gratitude. And one of the ways that you'll know that it's not the gospel fueling your life is that when hardships come your way, not if they come your way, when hardships come your way, that you blame God. How dare you? How dare you give me this version of life? I've done a better job than other people because you're not living with grace as the source of your life. Your life is about entitlement. And listen, I'm not preaching to the choir. I'm preaching to me. When my, when my late wife passed away uh, 11 years ago, I was incredibly angry at God because we had done everything the right way. We waited until our wedding night to have sex. We had crossed every T and dotted every I. I was going to leave my job as a lawyer to start a church. She was on board. She was my biggest cheerleader to do this. We were doing everything right. And God had the nerve, the audacity to let her die. Underneath the discontentment, there's, of course, immense sadness, which was appropriate. Beside that, which was what was most crippling to my faith and what I thought would never allow me to ever even be a Christian again, let alone be a pastor, was I was so mad at God for not giving me what I thought I deserved. And in some ways, I did lose my faith, and I rebuilt a different one, one based on the gospel, not based on Jordan. Many of you will, will struggle in suffering and challenges, not just because of the suffering and the challenges. Those are very difficult. But it's the entitlement that makes it unbearable. For others of you, it's not that you feel like God owes you. You feel like you owe God. And maybe that the thing that you're going through right now, you believe that it has come your way because God is trying to pay you back for something because you still feel like there's a debt hanging over your head. God wants us to have a completely different motivation in our life. Number three, and we'll get out of here. Uh, we need to rely on God's grace, not your own works. I will probably forget about most of what I've said today by 8 o'clock tonight. And I know y'all will forget by the time you even, by the time you're at brunch, you would have forgotten most of these things. And that's normal because you and I are people that have almost like what Pastor Brandon said last week, like we have like this worship amnesia. We forget about the goodness of God in our lives. And God knows that about you. God knows that about me. 
And as a result, God has given us the means of grace. Now, the means of grace are also known as spiritual disciplines, reading scripture, praying, fasting. These are the ways that God pours his love into your life. This is not a set it and forget it. This is you and I need to constantly be engaged with scripture and prayer and Christian community because we are so prone to forget who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And so for you this week, what my hope is, my homework for you is that you would read through the book of Galatians. Uh, you could read through it all in one sitting or you can break it up depending on your time and your, uh, how quickly you can get through scripture. Uh, to read through it in a version that you can understand so if you don't have a Bible, that, um, a paper Bible, go on a U version, and I would really recommend reading what's called the CSB Bible or the NIV or the um, ESV. Uh, I, I would probably not recommend reading the King James Bible for a number of reasons. Please don't yell at me in the hallway. Um, but for many people, it's hard for you to read, so please uh, read it in a scripture that you can understand. And allow God to remind you about the depth of his love for us in Christ. And see how that changes your life. Not as one more thing to add to your list, but as God's way of getting his love, his power, his work on our behalf into our hearts. So I want to leave us today with a prayer. It's actually the prayer of St. Patrick um, as, a, as a blessing over you. Lord, we exist today through God's strength to pilot us, God's might to uphold us, God's wisdom to guide us, God's eye to look before us, God's ear to hear us, God's word to speak for me, God's hand to guard me, God's way to lie before me, God's shield to protect me, God's angels to save me from snares of the enemy, from temptations of vices, or from anyone who desires me ill. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of every woman who speaks of me, Christ in the eyes of everyone that sees me, Christ in the ears of everyone that hears me. Amen and amen.